0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post.
0: Host this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahi Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, May 28th. Today, the roots of the anti-vax movement, Trump's softened tone on Iran, and the surprising success of Green candidates in Europe.
2: So when we talk about vaccine safety, how many people have heard every single news agency in the country say vaccines are safe and effective? Get ready, folks, because that is gonna come crashing down right now.
3: The anti-vax groups in the United States have lots of different ways to reach people. They have been increasingly organizing around social media, but they also double down and have been increasing their physical presence in community meetings, in distributing pamphlets, and showing up at public hearings to testify about bills. My name is Lena Sun. I'm a health reporter for the Washington Post.
0: Lena has been reporting on the current measles outbreak in the US, the largest in decades. Many of the cases have been concentrated in ultra Orthodox Jewish communities in New York. And even as public health officials are working to contain this disease, anti-vaccine advocates are still showing up in these communities telling
3: people not to vaccinate. Several of the most Prominent anti vaxxers showed up at a community meeting to answer quote unquote questions about the measles vaccine. Imagine this hundreds of people in this ballroom. You are having a measles outbreak that is the longest lasting and worst in, oh, three decades. Children are sick in the hospital on breathing tubes, and these people are telling the audience that they should not get vaccinated, that measles is a benign disease and the vaccine is more dangerous than the disease. So these kinds of meetings or events,
0: they're happening now. Like even after this huge measles outbreak, like last week they showed up and had this meeting telling people not to get their kids vaccinated for measles?
3: The message is often couched as it's your personal choice, your parental right, and it's the government." telling you what to do and you have this beautiful baby and the government is telling you to inject it with vaccine
0: so how did the anti-vax movement
3: as we know it get started most people would say that it started in the 1980s with a woman from virginia i'm barbara Low fisher my son was injured by dpt vaccine in 1980 and this is a reference commentary Defending freedom of thought, speech, and conscience, brought to you by the nonprofit National Vaccine Information Center. She had her eldest son vaccinated for whooping cough. That is part of a combination vaccine, and it's recommended that you get several shots. And I believe it was after he got his fourth shot that she said she found her two and a half year old son sitting in a rocking chair, staring off into space, and that his eyes were vacant, and his head fell back, and she claims he had convulsions and seizures and was never the same again. Two years later, she saw a television program about the dangers of this particular vaccine, and it convinced her that she needed to do something to address vaccine safety, and she formed a group that later became the National Vaccine Information Center, which is based in Sterling, Virginia, and that group has now become one of the most effective anti-vax organizations in the country. It specifically focuses on state laws around vaccine requirements.
0: So in, in this case of this woman and, and her kid, was it shown that the vaccine that he'd received had actually caused real damage?
3: So it's complicated because a lot of times science is iterative and they don't know the answers right away. This vaccine had a significant risk of side effects, and some of those side effects included fevers and febrile seizures. She claimed that he had permanent brain damage because of this, but studies later showed that it did not cause permanent brain damage. In fact, there were multiple studies about the children who were aired in the television show that found that those children's problems were caused by a genetic mutation.
0: And then how did it grow from
3: there? I think the next major development would have been in the 1990s. And this had to do with Andrew Wakefield, who was a British doctor. And he published a paper more than 20 years ago that still reverberates and colors what many people think about vaccines.
0: The link between the syndrome we were seeing and MMR vaccine came from the parental story the parents saying, I wasn't anti-vaccine, I took my child to be vaccinated with MMR on time. It was given in isolation at the time in the UK, so it was easy for them to pinpoint the MMR as what they believed to be the cause. And from that point forward, their child developed a very high fever, seizures, prolonged sleep, beyond which they woke up and they were never the same again. They lost speech and language, interaction with their siblings, and became profoundly
3: unwell. The paper was false, it was debunked, it was retracted, it turned out he had a conflict of interest, and he was stripped of his medical license by the British authorities. And it made the claim that the MMR vaccine was linked to a rise in autism in children. And so that was the root
0: of this idea that that vaccines cause autism.
3: Yes. And at the time, there was an increase in diagnoses of autism. And around that time is when the internet really started to get going. So if you talk to moms from that time, um, they said that his paper was the first that sort of put these two things together. And the what happened was that people started to notice the first signs of autism around the time that their children got the MMR vaccine, the vaccine against measles, mumps, and rubella, which is around 12 months old. That's what scientists call a temporal association. A happens, and then you see B, and you think A caused B. But that's not what happened. And 21 studies, including hundreds of thousands of children around the world, have debunked that false claim. But why do you
0: think that it still continues to be so effective in taking hold in
3: the minds of parents that there is this link? I think if you're a parent and you see that your child is injured in some way, you really want something or someone to blame. And also, once you get a scary thought in your head, it is very hard to get it out. And it comes at a time when there is distrust of government distrust of pharmaceutical companies, distrust of elites, and this is all part of that same idea. And finally, because of social media, things that you see from these anti-vax groups get repeated in your Facebook feed, your neighbor, your college roommate. When they share it, it normalizes this idea.
0: One of the biggest figures in the anti-vax movement right now is this Guy
3: named Del Bigtree. Tell me about him. Del Bigtree is the son of a minister, and he helped to produce a film with Andrew Wakefield.
0: That, that's the British guy. That's who, the British started, guy, right. The...
3: The, so the British guy gets stripped of his medical license. And where does he come? He comes to the United States. He lives in Austin, Texas. And Del Bigtree and Andrew Wakefield make a movie that alleges this conspiracy and cover-up about the vaccine.
2: My phone rings, and it's Dr. William Thompson. You and I don't know each other very well. You have a son with
1: autism, and
4: I have great shame now. There's a whistleblower from the CDC who's going to come out and say that the CDC had committed fraud on the MMR study and that they knew that vaccines were actually causing autism.
3: And they took this movie... um, Around the country and showed it to different audiences and Del Bigtree realized that he really wanted to do this and so he started his own group in 2016 to further these messages about vaccines and to frame vaccines as the reason for everything why there's more asthma, there's more chronic illness, there's more cancer, everything they are blaming on vaccines.
0: and. When Del Bigtree goes out and talks to people about the alleged ill effects of vaccines, how does he how does he communicate these ideas? Like, how does he frame his theories on this?
3: He's a very charismatic speaker. He has an online show which goes on multiple platforms and he often has guests who are like the who's who of the anti-vax movement.
2: Is this science, does this really sound like immaculate science to you? Does this really sound like the science has been settled? These are our kids that are hanging in the balance. You go ahead and watch this and you decide what you think. I'm going to tell you what I think.
3: He gives rousing speeches and in one way that many have found offensive. He's gone to the ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities and worn a yellow star Hmm. to say that he stands with them and likening what the government is doing with vaccinations to the Nazi persecution of Jews.
2: Our children are being sold to the pharmaceutical industry. We are being enslaved. And we are standing here now
3: together. When he goes to these rallies and testifies before state legislatures, um he he sounds very convincing because they all talk in a way where they use scientific terms and a lot of state lawmakers Here's what they see. They see a parent who comes to them and tells them a sad story about their so-called vaccine-injured child, and they tell the story with absolute certainty. And then you have scientists and researchers who come up and say, They cannot talk in absolutes when it comes to risks. There's nothing that is without risk. And they can say the preponderance of the evidence shows this or the data shows this. That is not nearly as compelling or heart-wrenching as a mother who comes to you and says, the light went out of my son's eyes after he got a vaccination.
0: How can the public health community fight back against this?
3: I think it's been hard for them to match the ferocity and intensity of the messaging that is on social media. The videos that anti-vax groups put out, the algorithms that are designed to surface those videos that are most appealing to you, which would be emotional testimonials. And your Facebook feed will show the messages from doctors and public health groups in the same font as those from an anti-vax group. So it is hard, and I think they are beginning to realize that you cannot just get up there and say, trust us that vaccines are safe and effective, and it's the best way to protect your child. Lena Sun
0: is a health reporter for The Post. Ago, U.S. tensions with Iran started to heat up, and President Trump took a tough stance.
4: We'll see what happens with Iran. If they do anything, it will be a very bad mistake. If they do anything, I'm hearing little stories about Iran. If they do anything, they will suffer greatly. We'll see what happens with Iran.
0: But on Monday, speaking at the tail end of his visit to Japan, Trump started to sound different.
4: And I'm not looking that to hurt Iran at all. I'm looking to have Iran say, no nuclear weapons. We have enough problems in this world right now with nuclear weapons, no nuclear weapons for Iran.
1: So you saw this incredible ratcheting up of tensions and then Trump orders uh, troops to the region. So it sounds like something dramatic's about to happen. And then a couple of days after that, you hear Trump at the press conference with the Japanese prime minister saying he's not for regime change. And he thinks that there can be a deal and the talks should continue.
4: And I think we'll make a deal. I think Iran, again, I think Iran has tremendous economic potential. These are great people. It has a chance to be a great country with the same leadership. We're not looking for regime change. I just want to make that clear. We're looking for no nuclear weapons.
1: We've gotten a lot of mixed messages going from uh, saber rattling to now potential for some peaceful talks that might be dramatic because just in the last couple of weeks, it's been very up and down. Michael Cranish
0: is an investigative political reporter for The Post. He says that while Trump's comments are confusing, there may be a strategy to the zigzagging.
1: President Trump specifically said that he didn't want, quote, regime change, which is notable because his national security adviser, John Bolton, has specifically called before for regime change. And there were some people who thought, in fact, this is what the U.S. was aiming for.
2: I, I have said for over 10 years since coming to these events, that the declared policy of the United States of America should be the overthrow of the Mullah's regime in Tehran.
1: So he was signaling that the U.S. is not going to invade and try to overthrow uh, the leadership, although they may still be hoping that that happens internally.
0: And this is kind of a reversal of what he's been doing for the last few weeks, that we've seen escalating tensions with Iran. And now he's saying he doesn't want regime change. He's ready to do a deal. He thinks that Iran is willing to do a deal. He wants folks to come to the table. What are we supposed to glean from this mixed message?
1: Well, it's sort of a classic Trump strategy. As a business person, he would often try to back people into a corner, those who'd lend him money and so forth, and then leave them no choice but to try to do a deal, you know, even if it meant taking less money back from Trump. Trump is trying to take credit for some economic difficulties in Iran that he believes and hopes will send Iran back to the table for a new nuclear deal. So he basically, in this press conference with the Japanese prime minister, was giving himself some credit for all of the economic calamity that's gone on in Iran that he hopes will foment this change and uh, perhaps uh, talks for a new deal.
0: So his strategy is basically if he comes off tough in some ways, but then comes off as friendly and willing to compromise in others, that that pressure will lead people to want to come to the table.
1: Right. Well, Iran has said that this is a very, quote, dangerous game to play. There have been a lot of concerns about what's going on. So, for example, the U.S. has said we're going to impose more sanctions than Iran said. We're going to start pulling back from a little bit of the Iran deal. And that sort of gave an opening to the Trump administration to say, aha, you're not going to follow the Iran deal like we said all all along. Um, sort of a justification for what they've been doing. And then Trump said a few days ago that he was going to order 1,500 troops and other military equipment to the region.
4: We want to have protection. Uh, The Middle East, we're going to be sending a relatively small number of troops, uh, mostly protective, and uh, some very talented people are going to the Middle East right now. And we'll see how, and we'll see what happens.
1: So it's just led to this Concern, some of the democratic presidential candidates, for example, have said basically trump is is trying to go to war, and uh, there would be people on both sides of the political aisle who would be concerned about that. so this is a moment uh, where Trump uh, did take a breath, but he's also is trying to send the signal that he's got a strategy here, and people have been wondering about that. Because, of course, with Trump, you really often don't know where he stands. One day he'll say, I'm for this, then I'll talk to someone else, and that'll change. So we've seen that again and again. Trump has based his presidency, in large part, on this idea that he's a great deal maker, and yet there's been a lot of deals that haven't been made or that have been falling through, like he was going to have a deal with North Korea on denuclearization. So We just, you know, haven't seen some of the success that he has promised. So if he is able, in fact, to get Iran to come to the table for a new nuclear deal, that would be an extraordinary moment for Trump. We're a long way from knowing if that's possible.
0: So what we're seeing in terms of President Trump's strategy on this, is this basically President Trump, the the businessman coming out, the, the art of the deal guy?
1: Well, he certainly wants to present himself as a great deal maker. The reality is, he wasn't a terribly successful business person for many years. He went 900 million dollars in debt. He had a company that he created that had a $35 per share stock price that went to 17 cents. So I think it's also awful useful to remember that he wasn't a great deal maker. He wrote a second book called The Art of the Comeback because he had gone down so far part of his strategy was to back people into a corner. So for example, there were banks that loaned to Donald Trump an enormous amount of money. And there was a temptation by some of those bankers to basically you know, call in the chips, if you will, make him declare bankruptcy. Uh, but they eventually decided that he was worth more to the bank's Uh, Alive than dead. And so they uh, gave in. They told him that he didn't have to pay everything back. So Trump has succeeded by putting people in this box. Whether he can do that with Iran is very different from being in business. You've got other countries who've signed on to this deal. They may not want to go along with Trump. So that's very key for Trump, whether he can get other people to agree with him. A lot of it is basically about image. You know, he has had a lot of bluster here. He certainly followed through in the campaign promise, pulled out of the Iran deal, has imposed more sanctions that by all reports have been very hurtful to the Iran economy. So Iran has some motive here, but they're also still a powerful country and they want to remain in power. So by trying to make a deal with Trump, they may want to find a way not to do a a deal with Trump personally, but maybe make some kind of accommodation with others so they don't have to sit at a table uh, with Trump, for example.
0: One other thing that we've seen over the past few weeks as the U.S. has escalated tensions with Iran is these other countries who are part of the Iran nuclear deal. How have the U.K. and France and China and Russia and Germany been influencing Trump's thinking and Trump's actions on this?
1: Well, several other countries did sign on to this Iran deal. So far, they've stuck with it. So Iran does have some leverage here, and knowing that other countries uh, you know, don't want to necessarily back out of the deal, although they're being pressured heavily by the United States in various ways. So what happened on Monday was that Trump basically um, said that the prime minister of Japan should try to talk with Iran, so bring another party in here that maybe could get them out of this uh, predicament. Certainly, Trump would like to walk away with some kind of new deal. And if he can get help from the Japanese prime minister, you know, from his perspective, he sees that as helpful. And then uh, this morning, Iran has said they look forward to talking with the Japanese. oftentimes people talk to delay things. It doesn't mean that something's going to happen. So we don't know if if this is a real breakthrough or if it's just a way that things will just sort of be status quo for a while.
0: Michael Cranish is an investigative political reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. A surprising rise to power in the European Union. Thank you, everyone. What a night, and what a night to come. It is a great task to now put into action those things that people asked us to do. Climate protection, social justice in Europe, and fighting for civil liberties all over. Over the the weekend, citizens across the EU voted for their new parliament.
2: They are the second biggest expression of democracy in the world after India's elections.
0: Michael Birnbaum is the Brussels bureau chief for The Post.
2: It was a big moment because no one really knew what was going to happen. There was a lot of fear that the far right in Europe was about to do really, really well. But what happened in the end was that the far right did well. It gained seats. It is at an all-time high. But you also saw a lot of other smaller parties doing well, especially the Green Party from France and Germany and and all over Western Europe.
0: And that is a Europe that has been voted for and where we as Greens have been performed even better than the polls have predicted.
2: They won a hair under 70 seats in the 751 seats of the European Parliament and that was a gain of about 15 seats, that means they have 9% of the seats. That's not gigantic, but that puts them in place to be kingmakers. And that's what matters here in this election, even though they're still pretty small. As all of the traditional parties are falling apart, they suddenly need the support of the Greens to get anything done in the European Parliament. And that makes the Greens really powerful. They are going to be able to help decide top jobs in the European Union, and on a lot of policy issues. The environment, of course, and climate are their big, big focuses. But they have a whole range of issues they're focused on. They talk about sustainable economics. So they've really professionalized, pulled themselves together, and it's almost like they're a kind of new establishment. We're in the middle of a transition period in politics and it's clearly happening in the United States and it's also happening in Europe where a lot of the old-fashioned parties are collapsing or being remade. A lot of Europeans, they're still in pain from the lingering effects of the global financial crisis. And they looked at their old left-wing politicians and said, these guys are not really offering us different set of solutions from the center-right. These politicians all kind of sound alike. And we want to try someone new. And so the expectation is that the Greens are going to keep doing well and keep doing better.
0: From our side, we want to thank all the voters coming out, but especially, of course, the voters who are very clearly asking for change. Asking change for a new Europe. A Europe that is fighting climate change, a Europe that is looking for a green transition in a socially just way. Michael Birnbaum is the Brussels bureau chief for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers.